is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. The time has come to deal the enemy a terrific blow in Western Europe. Montgomery's opening words to D-Day troops under his command. Prime Minister Theresa May gives thanks to those who were there 75 years ago today, especially to those who didn't return. But why has it taken so long to build this new memorial to the biggest military operation ever and those who gave their lives? For the past 48 hours, we have been there with them on the beaches of Normandy. 150,000 troops under British command of General Montgomery. Here are the words of Monty, who wrote to them the night before battle. The time has come to deal the enemy a terrific blow in Western Europe. The blow will be struck by the combined sea, land and air forces of the Allies, together constituting one great Allied team under the supreme command of General Eisenhower. On the eve of this great adventure, I send my best wishes to every soldier in the Allied team. To us is given the honor of striking a blow for freedom which will live in history. And in the better days that lie ahead, men will speak with pride of our doings. We have a great and a righteous cause let us pray that the Lord, mighty in battle, will go forth with our armies and that his special providence will aid us in the struggle. I want every soldier to know that I have complete confidence in the successful outcome of the operations that we are now about to begin. With stout hearts and with enthusiasm for the contest, let us go forward to victory. And as we enter the battle, let us recall the words of a famous soldier spoken many years ago. He either fears his fate too much or his deserts are small. Who dare not put it to the touch to win or lose it all? Good luck to each one of you and good hunting on the mainland of Europe. General Bernard Montgomery's message to his troops on the eve of battle. Well, I'm joined by security analyst Professor Michael Clark and our own defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Clark, Montgomery had been waiting for years to send this message. The operation had taken ages to organise militarily and politically. Yes, and it was still pretty controversial because uh, the Americans were pushing for it, the Russians were pushing for it, the British were, um, they feared it because of the risks. And it was an incredibly risky undertaking. I mean, because we know it had a happy outcome from our point of view, we we rather take for granted that it had to succeed. But actually, the, the, the window in the weather was very narrow. And the the task, in a sense, it was a massive operation, but the task was very simple. Get 150,000 men onto the beaches and at the bridgeheads, and if they were still there 24 hours later, then we'd won. That is, the, 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 the troops coming in behind them, uh, the two million that came in uh, to follow them into the Battle of Normandy eventually and through to Germany. That was unstoppable, but they had to still be there 24, 36 hours later. Mm. And that was an enormous risk at the time and on the day. Christopher Lee, what do you make of that message on the eve of D-Day? It's, it's interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's the language of the 1930s. 
we ought to put this into context. Remember, we talk uh, now the veterans there looking at it through modern eyes to some extent. But if you had been of that generation, of that social de- uh, generation, you understood this sort of language. It is almost, it, it is almost, it could have been read before Agincourt. Uh, he talks about the team. He talks about on the eve of this great adventure. Um, and you can hear the blow for freedom, the honour of striking. The, light, the Lord mighty in battle, you see, will go forth with our armies and, and his special providence will aid us in this struggle. You know, God is in the side of the righteous, well, of Montgomery anyway. Um, and he wanted every soldier to understand with stout hearts, enthusiasm for, again, the sporting uh, contest. He says, as we enter the battle, let us recall the words of a famous soldier. He's quoting poetry to them. And he talks of good hunting as well. And at the end of it, and good hunting, good hunting on the mainland of Europe. It is almost sort of, uh, I suppose, Richard Hannay and that sort of period of the 1930s. Mm. This could be written. But it got to people because he says, good luck to each one of you. In other words, that was... A soldier would feel he was talking to him personally. Well, this morning a sculpture of three soldiers was unveiled which will form part of a memorial overlooking Gold Beach. It will record the names of more than 22,000 troops under Montgomery's command who died in the D-Day landings and the Battle of Normandy. The Prime Minister was joined by the French President Emmanuel Macron at Vers-sur-Mer in Normandy for the inauguration ceremony this morning. Theresa May says she was humbled to be there. Here in Normandy... We will always remember their courage, their commitment, their conviction. And to our veterans here in Normandy today, I want to say the only words we can. Thank you. Christopher Lee, why has it taken so long for this thank you in this way? Well, it's this particular thank you, isn't it? Um, And... Uh, there are other memorials, but they're regimental memorials, or they tend to be. But we don't do it. We don't say, "Hey, we've just won that battle. Let's put up a memorial in in about sort of, you know, a couple of year, a couple of years later." Think about Nelson's column, the biggest or the tallest memorial to to a British victory in in, in the whole of the British Empire, as it was. Uh, it wasn't put up until forty years after the Battle of, of Trafalgar, and then by public donation. Uh, what about the memorial to bombers, bomber command during the Second World War? That's a very very recent thing. Somehow you can't get it through. You can't get it through to people, say, we've got to build a memorial because somebody in government says, well, there's something else to do, and we don't do that sort of thing. I don't know why, but we don't. Well, General Lord Dannett, former Chief of the General Staff, has been talking about this today in Normandy. It's quite extraordinary to think the Americans have had a memorial, the Canadians have had a memorial. We, the British, have never had a memorial until this moment. So we are now seeing the beginnings of 50 or 60 years too late, probably, a national memorial to all those who lost their lives in the Normandy campaign. For the veterans, they really wanted somewhere where all the names were so that they could see, well, that's where my mate, he landed with me and, and then he died. And the families can come and they can see all the names. It'll be a great place of reflection, commemoration and gratitude for the service they gave and the sacrifice they made. Professor Michael Clark, is it 50 or 60 years too late? Uh, it is in a way, but I mean, the, the reason we're doing it now is because this is the last time we can celebrate with uh, those who are still with us who uh, went through these events. In a way, this is the golden thread and it's about to break quite soon. So this is the last time we can still touch fingers with those who were there. And in a way, 
to to have the memorial now when it's still within living memory somehow somehow uh, allows us to feel that it is for all of them who were there on that day and i'm sure i've often thought you know that if we if you could have gone back to any of them on the 6th of june as they were in the landing craft going towards the beach and if you could have said to them how do you want this to be celebrated in years to come i'm absolutely convinced that every one of them would have said i don't give a toss how you <laughs> celebrate it as long as we never have to do this again i'm sure that's what they would have said mm. of course this wasn't the end of the war what happened next michael how did we get to ve day very difficult because uh, so much effort had gone into preparing for the invasion that not so much effort had gone into working out how we we're going to do it after that. And indeed, the army that went to Normandy, the British army that went to Normandy, wasn't particularly well structured or well trained. I mean, the three big divisions, the Guards Division and the 7th Armoured Division and the 11th Armoured Division, they all had different ways of operating in terms of artillery and the way they were going to use tanks. And it was all a bit of a mess, to be honest. Also, most of the, the soldiers that landed on D-Day had not fought before. They were just like Kitchener's army in the Somme. This was their first taste of battle. But just like Kitchener's army, though the official training and structure was poor, within a month, by the end of August, when they're broken out of the Bocage and were on their way then through to Belgium, as my own father was, and into the Netherlands and then into Germany, they'd learned. They got the hang of it, just like Kitchener's army did. It wasn't a matter of doctrine. They learned on the job. But of course... You know, they lost, I mean, on the day, of the, the June the 6th, they lost 4,500 people, which is fewer than they thought. But by the end of August, they'd lost 22,500 because of the poor organisation and thinking about what they were going to do on D plus 2. See, I was saying with, I with my father talking about this, he was a guard's armour division, and he said it was wrong to have a guard's armour division. You know, there were basic things that somebody quite down the line was saying, well, we're not quite sure about this, and we haven't trained for it. You know, in a couple of a couple of weekends on on Salisbury Plain, didn't actually fix it. But what was good was the was the idea of what you were going to try and attempt to do with what you had, and also the training that had gone before was had to be pretty simple. Uh, mm. And uh, the army wasn't a complicated organisation at that time. Yeah. What was complicated was how how you manoeuvred that army. Um, there's another side of this that. Was, was struck me was important that what was happening with say say the Russians, um, somebody somebody talking to recently he is doing a study uh, using papers that have come out of uh, old KBG files and I don't know why KGB files showing that that um, Stalin had said to Zhukov uh, why can we not keep going because when people say well uh, uh, the the Russians would be here at the Channel ports for four, in four days. Uh, they always believed they could, but the same reason that they couldn't uh, was there because there was this army coming towards them. There is also the fact that Zilkov turned around and said, "Well, you know, you cannot support an advancing army because you need, you know, tanks and you can't support it at that sort of rate. And where would you end up and what you're trying to do?" Okay, just talking about the commemorations day on the 75th anniversary, we shouldn't forget the U.S. President Donald Trump. He was there, and a million American soldiers died in that war. Here is Mr. Trump reflecting on times past. We are gathered here on freedom's altar on these shores, on these bluffs, on this day 75 years ago. 10,000 men shed their blood and thousands sacrificed their lives for their brothers, for their countries, and for the survival of liberty. Michael, a reminder that the Americans made a huge contribution and that the overall commander was American. 
Yes, of course, General Eisenhower and, and his granddaughter, Susan Eisenhower, uh, has been in town uh, this week and she's talking about the way her grandfather talked about it all. And he was the man who had to take responsibility. And, you know, she reveals that he carried round in his pocketbook for a couple of weeks afterwards a, a note, a letter he had written explaining the failure. If, the, if it had failed, then he, he had a note to take full responsibility and make it clear that it was all down to him. And he'd written it out beforehand because this is how risky it was. And he carried it around with him for a couple of weeks. And when somebody said to him, why did you do that? So he said, oh, I do it with all invasions. You know, somebody's got to take responsibility. And in that respect, he was a, he was a great commander. And he was also a great political commander because the generals at the time, if you look at Montgomery and Patton, who were both martinets in their own way, couldn't almost be in the same room together. He managed to meld them together. Him and Omar Bradley actually performed a tremendous political act as, as they drove this great allied army forward, crossing the Rhine and then into the invasion of Germany itself. Uh, Montgomery found him difficult and unconvincing. Yes, Michael. Christopher. Um, oh yes, yes. I mean, Mont yes. I mean, Montgomery. Did, didn't he wanted to go to a different place, didn't he? <laughs> yes, that's right. But the fact is, Eisenhower had a way of dealing with Montgomery. That was the point. Yeah. And and he, you know, he was in overall control, and he was he was the right sort of general. He he wasn't he wasn't a soldier's soldier, Eisenhower. He was a politician's soldier. And at that level, at this moment, that's probably what you needed. Gentlemen, stay with us. Still to come, the voices of the men who survived and the view from today's Normandy beaches. Now let's bring this right up to date and modern times when all the rules of warfare have changed because the weapons have and the politics have. The Second World War was a war in which the army abandoned its horses. Today, we're abandoning our tanks. Well, warfare has changed and therefore so must the army. Here is the man who commands it, Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mark Carlton-Smith. The rules of warfare are changing and need updating and which without correction potentially leads us close to a position of dominant irrelevance, both dominant and irrelevant at the same time in a form of warfare essentially born of the industrial age and wars of production, which is no longer as relevant as we close rapidly with the reality of the information age and the competition for data. And it might not be too far into the future before armies are no longer distinguished by the volume of their hardware, the number of tanks, infantry fighting vehicles and the like, but actually and much more accurately by the sophistication and integration of their software and the associated artificial intelligence. Professor Michael Clark, um, are there any rules of war which allow you to prepare to go to war? Well, the, the nature of warfare never changes. This goes back for 3,000 or more years, which is that it's a, it's a contest of willpower between two groups using lethal force, that people are prepared to kill and be killed to have their will prevail, and that doesn't change. But the way in which you do that, the characteristics of war change all the time. And what Mark Carlton Smith was pointing to in this, this was the Rusi Land Warfare Conference this week in which he was speaking there in that, in that clip. Um, he was saying that really we spend too much time worrying about the heavy metal. He, he didn't use those words. Those are my words. But, mm. you know, the heavy metal is very beguiling. Politicians love the heavy metal because they can count it. It looks good and so on. But really, we've got to give more, more attention to the enablers, the things that back it up, to the things that give you the competitive edge. And that we may 
may be moving into, and again, he didn't say this, but this mm. is my phrase, the fourth generation of warfare, or warfare in the fourth industrial revolution, which is the, is the revolution of, of, uh, hype, of cyberspace, of hyper-competition, and of artificial intelligence. Those are the new competitive edges, and we've got to embrace them, said Mark Carlton-Smith, rather than try to just manage so, them. Christopher Lee, to what extent is this me- medicine to soften the blow of what might well be more cuts to equipment? Um, where it's where it's likely to cut is probably not that important. Where it could cut is very important. For example, cyber warfare has changed the distinction, the whole distinction of the transition to war, that TTW that everybody thinks about, because it is the degradation of the other side in what we now accept is the most obvious way is you know bringing down systems making systems not work confounding other 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 distinctions saying look we can't operate that radar even as something as simple as that or we turn all the traffic lights out in london you know it's that sort of level level which is that part of the transition to war which is the distinction of actually saying there is instability now you do that on a global scale and you can do it on a global scale, then you're getting into a side of warfare that goes far beyond the you know, ECM, the electronic countermeasures that you would have expected maybe during the past, past 20 years. But the point about Michael's right about the heavy metal is no, is no longer it's so important. And yet you might argue that part of the heavy metal is what you display. And that is it's, it's not a deterrence, but it, it actually prevents not warfare on the state-to-state confrontation that we've been talking about over the past 48, 72 hours, but the sort of warfare that we actually face now far more, such as in another, going into another country, helping somebody in Africa just to restore the politics of a nation. Uh, and that is a form of warfare, which is nevertheless warfare, even though it's not on the, the, the great invasion sort of yeah. scale that we've been talking about. Michael he- 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 Heavy metal is like um, a dinner suit. Hmm. Um, that is, that when you need it, nothing else will do, but you don't need it so often. H- how likely is it, do you think, <laughs> Michael Clark, that... Um, the best-dressed man. <laughs> that, ..that a country could seize the national digital assets of another country and render it digitally dumb, blind, deaf, for example? Is, is that ever going to happen in the future, or is it going to be smaller uh, attacks that are less easy to identify? Yes, the, the prospect of all-out cyber war is actually quite hard to imagine, to be honest. Um, it, it, you can certainly inconvenience other societies, but ultimately societies are very organic sort of organisations, and they can build resilience, and ultimately people are quite inventive. And so if all sorts of things go down, obviously that will cause immense disruption and anger and maybe despondency. But the idea that you could do the same sort of damage to a society by cyber war as you could by kinetic war, by destroying things, is quite hard to imagine. On the other hand, you can use cyber elements, quite considerable cyber elements, to distract attention, to create diversions, to actually undermine people's uh, ability to understand the truth. There's all sorts of ways you could use cyber to to aid physical warfare. But ultimately, you know, physical warfare tends to be about the infliction of violence or the threat of violence rather than the threat of inconvenience. Mm. Christopher Lee, I mean, in the fog of war with cyber warfare, it's more difficult to identify your adversary, isn't it? Well, you get, I, mean, I think I think quite quite a lot is known. You know, you know who's doing it. You know have, who has the capability of doing it. You know who set up the small factory in Paradelkano just outside of Moscow and has got all the students working on on 
you know, working on things that are happening at the MOD and other places like the Merchant Navy, uh, in some of the Merchant Navy communications through Trinity House. But there's another side of this, and, and that is, what do we have now in our foreign affairs uh, and, and, and defence briefs in somewhere like, say, London, that can identify not just capabilities but intentions of somebody who might we might have to go to war with yeah. and that is that's the that's the hardest one always has been the hardest one i know he's got a lot mm. of guys with cutlasses but what's he going to do with them michael clark and um, you said earlier that w when you need the heavy metal nothing else will do how do you get the balance right when you've got this changing landscape as the chief of the general staff alluded mm. to that's that's the issue that that you need the heavy metal to be flexible enough that it can perform different roles and of course that you can do that for medium uh, systems as it were like uh, uh, armored vehicles but you can't really do it for main battle tanks it's it's either 70 tons with a 120 millimeter gun or it isn't um, so the, there is a uh, it is quite difficult to get that balance and you're also trying to get a balance of uh, agility so in theory a small amount of heavy metal would be very effective if you could get it to the right place quickly enough with the right sort of intelligence and all the backup and that's the philosopher's stone that all defense planners are trying to work on to have the minimum amount of heavy metal it, the with the maximum flexibility to use it and there's you know, there's 50 years of work that goes into that and and you know and on this point about when when might you need it <clears throat> the, the 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 essence here is net assessment the ministry of defense is now trying to get into the business more seriously of net assessment which is to say not just what what are the capabilities that we have against some sort of horizon that we don't really understand out there let's have a net assessment let's work out exactly who we think we might go up against in the next 10 years very privately very secretly and do a net assessment what have they got and what have we got and how would we perform in operations against this this or that or that particular um, adversary so net assessment is a much more focused way of looking at your capabilities you don't talk about it very much in the public domain because you've got to name names as who you think you might be fighting in five years time or eight years time um, but actually it's very important that within the MOD uh, that that exercise is done and done it very, very in very great detail. I tell you, I think getting deep behind net assessment and what the chief of the general staff is actually thinking about is the bigger future question. Is this: Are we going to have to think about being a different sort of military country? Are we going to have to start thinking that we do different things with our military capability? Uh, things that don't have their history on the beaches of Normandy, but they have their, it, we don't have any history at all. In other words, we change our role. And this, one of the reasons you might want to do that is because the, you believe the world is changing considerably and you just don't go to war in the same ways as you did before. Or if you do, then you're going to have the uh, forces the size of the Americans. We haven't. And the second part of it is with the uncertainties you might get in, let's say, post-Brexit post uh, and beyond, much, much beyond, then you've got to start thinking, do we do this sort of warfare anymore at all? All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Michael Clark, thank you for your time today. Now, Christopher, uh, let's return now to the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, the Prime Minister said earlier, these men belong to a very special generation, the greatest generation. It's, it's more just what we were talking about and what Montgomery was talking about and how he spoke to them. He spoke to them as almost as a, as a housemaster might have done in his generation. 
uh, and said, you know, boys, you're going out to do something rather special and some of you may not come back, and all the sort of things that appeared in films. Well, let's cross now to Aramanche in France where we can speak to one of our sit-rep producers, Jamie Gordon. Hello, Jamie. This is the third time you've covered the D-Day commemorations in Normandy. Um, has it changed at all? How does it feel this year? Um, yes, it has changed. To me, it feels as though um, the few veterans that we have of what happened on this day 75 years ago, the more people come out to mark what they did because we were here just um, before six o'clock this morning and there was low tide and there were thousands of people out on the beach uh, in and around the Mulberry Harbours and uh, there was also a collection of hundreds of uh, World War II uh, military vehicles all lined up in a very orderly fashion. And it did strike me, and it struck me throughout the day, that the numbers here have uh, risen over the last 10 years. Of course, this is being touted as possibly the, the last official event, but then they said that five years ago. Hmm. And I know that uh, our presenter here, uh, Tim, has already been bet by a 95-year-old, but... Um, that 95-year-old will be back here in five years' time. <laughs> Very optimistic. I like that. I like the way he's thinking. What What has the atmosphere been like, Jamie? What can you see at the moment, for example? Well, I'm, we're um, up on top of the hill. I don't know if you know Aramanche. Uh, if you do, you'll know there's a Sherman tank perched on top of the hill, which gives a spectacular view into the village. And uh, actually, the whole of the main street is absolutely rammed with people, as is the car park, which has been turned into um, an area where they, were gonna where they are having... Uh, commemoration ceremonies. About 20 minutes ago, there was a, a parade uh, by veterans through the, the streets of the town into that car park area. Later on, we're expecting some uh, VIPs and dignitaries. But the atmosphere, as has been the case uh, on the last three occasions I've been here, has been uh, a, a great spirit, great fun, um, but also here for a serious reason. And we've spoken to several veterans and they say that they're here to remember their mates. And that's the same message that we get every time we come. Um, I think there is a sense of finality about it. Um, but certainly I've seen a few of the old boys knocking back the odd beer <laughs> and they're having a really good time. And it will continue late into the night with sing songs and a firework display. Jamie, I'm sure you'll be with them. I I'm just wondering, um, is there anybody you've met there in the last 48 hours who's really struck you that's go gone down in your memory? Well, we, we spoke to a gentleman this morning. Um, actually, it was a very interesting start to the day because we had a lone piper on the, on the Mulberry Harbour, the most exposed one at the front, and he plays um, um, a tune which kind of invoked the spirit of Billy Millen, who was the piper on the beach on the day of the D-Day landings. And we met somebody who was actually on this beach nine, uh, 75 years ago today, and he was as lucid and as accurate in his recall as, as any man 30, 40 years younger. There are just some extraordinary people here, and I, I've seen that every time I've been here. He, he kind of stands out, but they all do. Mm. Their resilience and their spirit's amazing. Um, I, bet, I bet it's pretty humbling. Jamie, I'm just wondering, have you had any chance to meet any of the locals? Um, a few, and they, they've been such a welcoming bunch. And... Um, there's a lot of Dutch here as well, actually, because it's a big day for the Dutch. Mm -hmm. But the French here, um, 
I was stuck yesterday at Sonneville um, where they did a big parachute drop and there was a whole rank mm-hmm. of cabs with veterans in them and they were stopped by the locals. They okay. were kissed and they were hands were shaken. It's a, it's a real lovely atmosphere. All right, Jamie, I'll, I'll let you go and spend some more time with the veterans there. Uh, thank you. I'm afraid that's almost all we have time for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, Christopher Lee and Jamie Gordon in Normandy. I'm Kate Chabot. I'll leave you, though, with these veterans and their memories of D-Day. I wasn't scared. I was absolutely terrified. There was no place to be in a wooden boat with 4,000 gallons of high octane on. I just waited for the shell to come through the roof and that would be me. I was, sh- I was shaking at the time. Thought it was an officer or an NCO going to tell me to pull myself together. And it wasn't, it was this, this little cockney lad. He says, I'm scared, mate. I always remember that. So I just said, well, we'll stick together, look after each other sort of thing. I had to clue what it, what it meant. And I decided that I would give it totally. If I was one of those who died, I, I, it wouldn't be because I'd surrendered. The skipper called the whole crew together and he said, the invasion is nearly imminent. You're now confined to the boat and the jetty. Also, fresh water will be rationed. I was brushing against which I thought were logs and there were bodies, corpses. And then, of course, when you got actually on the beach or a bit higher up, there'd be part of a body up in a tree. We were buffeted here, there and everywhere. We could see the explosions, we could feel the effect of the explosions. We were hanging on because we were standing up. Where's Charlie? Where's Billy, or, you know, name? Oh, didn't you hear about them? They got killed yesterday. That's when it really sunk in. And you, you then said, oh, this is serious stuff now.